Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast is brought to you by AccountingDepartment.com. AccountingDepartment.com enables entrepreneurs to get back to business by providing an outsourced accounting department and peace of mind that their numbers are being managed by experts. On a mission to empower businesses with accurate, timely, and insightful financial data, their outsourced bookkeeping, controller, and advisory services are customized to the unique needs of entrepreneurs and their companies. Learn more at accountingdepartment.com. Today's guest is Ty Hagler, founder and principal at TRIG, that's T-R-I-G, an innovation design and consulting firm that guides startups and corporate marketing teams along the path from idea to commercialization. As a former Olympic hopeful in the sport of flat water kayaking, Ty has found that the same principles of disciplined processes, pragmatism, and persistence that are required for sport can also be applied to teams that lead innovation results. Welcome, Ty. Well, thank you, Paul. It's an honor to be here on your podcast. Well, it's great to have you. And uh, I really want to get into this whole Olympic thing and, and learn about flat water kayaking. But before we do that, let's talk about Trig. What do you guys do? How did you get in business? And what's your role in the company? Uh, sure. So uh, Trig is a team of, um, of industrial designers, marketing professionals, and uh, customer researchers. And uh, so we work with startups to Fortune 500 companies to uh, take them from an initial idea all the way through to uh, commercially viable products. And uh, it's a lot of fun because uh, every day we're working on very, very different topics. The principles of good design apply across a lot of different industries. And so, uh, anyway, we're just surrounded by great people and great clients. And so uh, we have uh, just a lot of fun getting to play in the space of what's possible. And how long ago did you found the company? Uh, I started the company in 2008. All right. All right. Which so uh, is a rough time to start a business. But, yeah, uh, a, lot of, a lot of hard lessons along the way. <laughs> Good. I hope you'll you'll share a few of those with us. So let's break down a little bit. When you say industrial design, I'm one of those people that would say, "What does that mean?" Uh, and a lot of us talk about marketing and consulting. So maybe give one or two specific examples of what you do for your clients. Sure. So industrial design is a discipline was started back in the 1940s and 50s, but it's essentially making physical products uh, look like so appeal to uh, people. So you're looking at the aesthetics and beauty, usability, functionality and uh, taking something that can be very intangible related to a brand attribute or what is the emotion that you are hoping to inspire in somebody and then make that into a physical thing. And so we, as industrial designers, live at that intersection between engineering and marketing. And in many ways, we have to translate the languages of both disciplines into something that can be put on a shelf and sell. 
And uh, so industrial design, uh, there's a number of different schools uh, that, that teach students about industrial design. It's another way to think about it is where graphic design is to painting, industrial design is to sculpture, where you're dealing with you know 3D forms and what a user experience might look like. And those lines between industrial design and graphic design are getting uh, more and more blurry over time as the user experience extends through, I think, every touch point um, that a, uh, a customer might have with a company's brand and trying to do a comprehensive experience that uh, uh, it gives uh, you know, customers delight in, you know, what uh, the products and services that a company are offering. This seems like a very specialized niche. Is this something that you studied in a school? Yes. So I did a four-year degree in industrial design at Georgia Tech and uh, was a outstanding experience for me. I had started off as a mechanical engineering student um, all through high school, had been you know, basically one of those kids in the back of class, like would rather be drawing than paying attention to uh, you know, whatever the class was. And so had just really thought of myself as an artist and didn't like my job prospects as an artist. Uh, and so, you know, opted instead to go to school and become an engineer and then was getting into classes and had discovered the industrial design program. And I think I, I maybe spent about five seconds thinking about it as soon as I realized what it was, uh, <laughs> I jumped right into it. Cause it was such a fit for, you know, I think what I was trying to do of, you know, bring, beauty to the world and have a chance to interact with art and, um, and yet at the same time do something that's very practical that, you know, could, you know, add a lot of value to, uh, to other people. Mm-hmm. What a great journey. And I made me think of my son who is already talking about mechanical engineering because he mm-hmm. loves drawing comics and, uh, he's actually pretty good at it. Um, and he's only 11. So, uh, he's got a ways to go, but maybe there's a future as a intern for, uh, for Trig down the road. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We, we love to mentor younger designers. Oh, awesome. Well, um, let's get into a little bit of your background as a leader, because, uh, having this great talent that you studied, uh, and being on the technical side of things doesn't necessarily translate to leading people or leading a team. So what was the first time that you realized that, uh, that you were actually a leader? So, I mean, I, I'm very much a introverted person, um, in many ways, painfully. So I think through middle school and, you know, I used art as kind of a refuge uh, for, you know, having that opportunity to explore, you know, and kind of you know, explore my own personality as was developing. And so I think my early opportunities with leadership really came through Boy Scouts. Um, you know, I was not a Cub Scout and um, really joined maybe in eighth grade or so. And a friend at a new school we had moved to had invited me and it wound up just being a exceptional program that really gave me a lot of opportunities to, you know, step up through the leadership uh, program. So from, you know, assistant pro- patrol leader up to patrol leader, and then, you know, eventually senior patrol leader, those leadership opportunities and confidence building, you know, just going out for, you know, two weeks into the New Mexico wilderness and, you know, with, you know, your 
your uh, troop and, you know, whatever you can carry on your back, on your backpack. And that was, you know, how you were going to survive. Uh, it, you know, really helps you to, I think, develop that sense of kind of confidence and, um, resiliency and, uh, you know, also opportunities to, uh, learn what works and doesn't when you're trying to, uh, convince, uh, your peers that, you know, Hey, we need to get organized on this or it's going to be a really bad, uh, exploration. And, um, so, <laughs> Uh, that was definitely an early experience for, you know, developing as a leader, but then also through the uh, sport of flatwater kayaking, uh, had exposure to a lot of different uh, world-class coaches. And those lessons that they taught as, you know, they were building us from, you know, being, you know, a collection of teenagers into, uh, you know, high performers on the world stage um, was definitely exposed me to a lot of concepts that, um, I still use today. And, um, you know, then also tried to, uh, you know, share with my fellow athletes as we were, you know, pulling together in team boats and, um, you know, trying to put our, our collective best effort out on the, uh, the athletic arena. So let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, one is to first describe what is flat water kayaking, because when I think of kayaking, I'm thinking of the, the rapids and the gates that those guys uh, work through in and out of. Flat water is different. Describe that and how you originally got into it. Sure. So you've got the within the Olympic uh, events, you've got two disciplines for canoe kayak. Uh, so you just described slalom, which is you know where you've got you know moving water and you've got gates that you either have to go through downstream or upstream, and if you touch the gates, then you get a penalty. And the that sport definitely rewards um, you know your quick reflexes, being able to respond to sim, uh, you know multiple stimuli and be able to, you know, like reflexively get down the course as fast as you possibly can. Um, flat water kayaking is very similar to rowing, um, where we, you know, the Olympic course shares the same body of water as the rowers do. So, uh, week one of the Olympics is usually the rowing course, and then there's a transition and then the flat water course is basically narrowed. The buoys are brought in a little bit more and, uh, you're basically going from point A to point B as fast as you possibly can. And so the, uh, effort goes goes into making, you know, like every stroke count to the obsessive degree where you're counting each of your strokes, measuring your stroke rate, what's your power per stroke and the technical efficiency with which you can biomechanically apply, uh, what available energy you have as an athlete into forward motion along the water. Uh, it's, it's, it was a fascinating, particularly from a technical mindset standpoint, so much of it relies on, you know, the gear that you have in the paddle and the kayak and hydrodynamics and, you know, how you're able to apply that for a, you know, like a full on effort and was also an interesting time to be in the sport. Um, so I was, a volunteer in the 1996 Olympics that came through Atlanta, which is how I got exposed to it originally, and continued in the sport until 2006 when I, uh, you know, finally uh, retired and hung up the paddle. And during that time, the technology was changing uh, quite a bit, um, and so the, uh, in many ways, the way that you adopted that technology into your own. Um, 
you know, your own efforts as an athlete um, made a difference in how you performed on the water. So let's talk about this technology for a minute because I'm uh, a bit confused about how you track and monitor all these things from a technical standpoint. I'm thinking of just the the kayak uh, with the paddle. Um, so there, what what are you used as tools to measure all of these metrics that you've talked about? Oh, sure. So, I mean, we had some interesting exposure. So, like, um, so at a basic level, um, the kayak um, at its most fundamental level from, you know, just a speed standpoint, uh, you have a trade-off for speed and balance. So, these... You know, these are not these, uh, you know, like roto-molded rubber ducky kind of boats you're talking about here. These are, you know, carbon fiber materials with a Kevlar weave into it to get the lightest, strongest possible hull. And when you look at them, the modern kayak um, from an Olympic standpoint is basically a pencil that you sit on. And you, it takes about a month of just falling in the water to actually be able to balance these things. They're incredibly tippy um, to the degree where um, at the different world championships and Olympics, you invariably have one or two of the team boats that fall in the water simply because, uh, you know, if the balance gets out of whack and one person is, uh, uh, you know, a little bit out of sync with the others, then the whole boat can fall in the water. So they're, you know, very demanding from a skill standpoint. And, you know, if uh, there was, I think it was maybe the 2003 World Championships, it was, I think it might have been the Polish boat that fell in the water. And uh, you just want to see, like, if you, you know, at that level of of competition, um, you know, falling in the water, like, it's, it's such a basic skill to learn, but yet it happens at, you know, almost, it can happen at any point. Uh, so... You've got the boat itself, which you know is very technically advanced, and then the paddle dramatically changed um, maybe the 80s and 90s, where you went from a flat paddle, which is what most people are familiar with, to a wing paddle, which basically a flat paddle, the problem with it is that it can slide around on you in the water, and with a wing paddle, it basically grabs the water better so that... Um, once you put it in place, it locks into the water and you can get more direct forward force out of that paddle and the positioning and technique of putting the paddle in the water and then translating that into forward motion. Uh, so one of the greatest U.S. Uh, kayakers uh, in modern history is a gentleman named Greg Barton, and he was uh, he won. Uh, two gold medals within 90 minutes of each other at the 1988 Olympics. And part of that success, I think, was due to his uh, ability to take that wing paddle, which had just been developed, and fundamentally change the technique behind moving your torso and body to uh, take advantage of that, um, you know, like that mechanical advantage from the paddle and translate it into forward motion. And, uh, you know, we grew up studying his technique and watching videos of how he did it. And um, uh, even like, when we were at the Olympic Training Center, we would uh, have a 
uh, biomechanical, uh, I guess, analysts come in and take videos of us, us paddling and do a variance analysis against some of the top athletes in the world so that we could see like, hey, our hand position needs to move a little bit on top hand versus bottom hand and, you know, core rotation. There's, it's a rabbit hole of information if you ever wanted to dive into it. So. <laughs> wow. It's fascinating. It just fits so well with your personality and what and this whole idea of design and uh, um, innovation that became really your career. But let's talk about the people side of that experience for a minute. In this kayak, how many people were there? What was your role? And how did you learn some leadership lessons uh, in the kayak? Sure. So I the the, the uh, kayaks come in three three different variations. There's the single kayak, which is you know one person in a boat. There's the doubles, which two people in a boat, and then the fours. Uh, and so, I specialized in the fours. And you know you've got four people in the seat, so your kind of standard standard strategy for that is the person in the first seat is the one who is setting the cadence. Uh, for the boat. So what's your stroke rate? Uh, the, the person that actually has control over the rudder. So there's a tiller bar. So you're, you're controlling where the boat is going. Uh, second seat is the person who has the best ability to translate the uh, cadence. So the probably the most technically skilled person uh, translate the cadence from first seat back to three and four. And then three and four are typically your engines. Uh, so the people who have uh, the you know, I guess maybe the most power to be able to put on the, uh, the paddle, but, um, doesn't necessarily need to be as technically skilled or, you know, as aware of the strategy so much. And so I tended to sit first or second seat kind of depending on, uh, you know, the team that was put together and the, and I also had the great benefit of, um, I guess, coming into kayaking through the legacy of the 1996 Olympics and the venue that was uh, basically gifted to the community of Gainesville, Georgia, and uh, basically the and the coaches that were able to track to that. So it grew up in a large club where, you know, we had access to these coaches and we had, you know, a lot of, you know, kind of friends that had pulled into the sport. And so we were always in team boats and, um, um, and learning how to work together. And so, uh, it was, you know, over time, you know, most of my, you know, f- you know, the friends that I started the sport with kind of went off in a different direction and, um, you know, just for various reasons stuck with the sport from high school into college and then after college. And the, that training in team boats really led to, I think the, ability for me to set, you know, like to change some outcomes, um, with some of the different, uh, team trials and events that we're into. Um, one story that comes to mind was, um, you know, a very pivotal event for me was the 2003 world championships. Uh, so in an individual K one, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily that distinguished compared to others. So, uh, um, uh, had just barely made the, uh, the national team for the 2003 world championships. So there were, they were taking eight, uh, the top eight K one finishers from the trials. And then they put us in a pair of, it would put us in two different, uh, four man boats. So for the first race we went out for, um, positions one through four were in one team boat and then positions five through eight. So I was the last person to be able to make the team. And, you know, we had, you know, 
a handful of shots in order to figure out who would be in what team boat. And so had this, you know, kind of fun, uh, you know, happenstance to take advantage of this where, you know, rather than, you know, focus on so rather than focus our team on other aspects of it, I knew that if we were able to master the start, so getting everybody to, um, you know, put the power on the paddle at the very beginning of it, that we could uh, get a psychological advantage over the other team. And so we spent our time preparing for that race, which was only maybe 30 minutes, uh, working on nailing the start. And uh, this was up in Lake Placid. And it was uh, just such a cool experience because we wound up nailing the start and uh, getting easily a half boat to a full boat length lead on the uh, presumed favorites for that race. And what you know, like once you once a boat gets out of rhythm and uh, you know you're not working together as a team, then the whole thing falls apart. And especially when you start getting boat wash from your competitor, uh, which are waves that come off of your your boat, then it kind of completely throws off your balance and everything. And so we wound up winning that first race, and uh, you know, in part through you know getting a team of people to work together and uh, you know focus on you know nailing one or two things that are going to matter. And then letting the rest, uh, um, uh, you know, fall into play as it as it needed to. So that was, uh, you know, just a fun chance to, you know, I guess prove myself in a, you know, like that, you know, team boat skills really do make a difference. And it's not necessarily, you know, how much brawn you have, but it's, you know, how well you can get a team of people to work together and work in harmony with each other that uh, makes a huge outcome, makes a huge difference in the outcome of a race. Oh, yeah. It reminds me of uh, the the four man bobsled and uh, you know how much effort that they put in the start and um, you were smart enough to come up with that strategy very very quickly when you found when you were in that number one position did that take you out of your shell a little bit from being that introvert to realizing that you had a responsibility to be uh, kind of an outspoken leader in many ways that did because you know you're at that level you're dealing with uh, I don't know I guess type A people. So like very larger than life personalities. And that's just not me. And so I very much had to, you know, I guess assert myself and say, no, Hey guys, this is a you know vision for how we're doing this. This is, you know, what I'm bringing to the table. I need you guys to listen to me and trust me in this. And fortunately they did. And we were able to work on, work through that. And, um, uh, yeah. And it was just, you know, like you're, you're building up camaraderie among people who in one minute are, you know, fierce competitors with each other. And then you're having to come together as a team to, uh, um, you know, deliver, a you know, um, world-class result. And, uh, it's, there's always challenges with, uh, you know, getting, you know, getting that, getting people in that type of situation to work together and listen to each other and, you know, behave as a team. That sounds a lot, a lot like business, right? Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, were there any other, uh, kind of childhood memories or jobs you had along the way that you think had a, an impact on your development as a leader? So from at a childhood level, um, you know, watching both of my parents, um, very fortunate to see, I mean, both my mother and father are exceptional leaders in their own right. Um, so my father was in, uh, automotive manufacturing through most of his career and, you know, 
and he at an early stage became a plant manager and um, was thrust into leadership. And so he's got um, a wealth of wisdom in from his time as a you know business leader. That um, different sayings that you know and you know he you know, calls them daddyisms that mm-hmm. he's uh, bestowed on us have uh, you know been kind of a part of the you know I guess the the ethos that's there. And then the what was interesting was also seeing my mother became a leader while I was a teenager. Uh, she, you know, was a stay at home mom working some jobs from time to time, but for the most part, she was a stay at home mom. And then she became a, and volunteer with the 96 Olympics and then went on to become the, uh, I guess, executive director of the kayak program. And, so she was, you know, almost single-handedly responsible for, or I guess she was the, uh, she was the one who was attracting events to the Olympic venue and then putting them on. And so she had to navigate a lot of different personalities and, um, uh, really through, I guess, uh, you know, a sense of professional will, I guess, like make these things happen. Um, you know, funny story they were sharing with me a little while ago was um, uh, so the Army Corps of Engineers was responsible for the lake levels on Lake Lanier where the venue was, and the lake levels can go up and down quite a bit uh, you know, during the course of the year. And you know, my mother was having to hound the, you know, I guess the, you know, the head of the Corps of Engineers responsible for the lake levels uh, as these major events were happening. And so at a retirement party for the, I guess, former head of the Corps of Engineers during these events, uh, he was made the joke that um, uh, he's uh, he only fears two women, uh, his wife and my mother, uh, <laughs> just for <laughs> – uh, just for, you know, making sure that, uh, keeping them happy. And so she, uh, um, you know, just wound up having to go from being somebody who herself was fairly introverted and having to be a, you know, a leader herself in the world stage. It was just, you know, fascinating for, for me to watch and then, uh, try to emulate the lessons that they, uh, they both learned and, uh, and observed. So it sounds like they were both great examples for you. I love the daddy isms and, uh, my, my best example of that is we have a, a chalkboard uh, at home where uh, the kids, my kids will, will write down um, stupid things that I say. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, it's a full chalkboard. Uh, those are my daddyisms. So I'm not sure how profound they are, but uh, it's, I think it's made them laugh over, over time. So, um, so that's fun. You know, you know, with kids, you find yourself saying the You'd never expect to say the things you say because of the what your kids wind up getting into. So. <laughs> That's right. Um, can you think of uh, a significant emotional event uh, that has really shaped you in your leadership approach? Uh, you know, I think the decision to retire from sport and I guess reinvent myself – and move from, you know, an identity that's wrapped up in, you know, the sport and this achievement. And then I guess, 
you know, like deciding that this was not the path I wanted to go down anymore. Um, and then having to go through, well, what, what is this that is the, I guess the next, uh, next chapter of my life. I think so many people in business, uh, particularly as you move from one job to the next, or as you're moving from, you know, one career and then maybe moving into a startup have to go through that process of reinvention. Um, because I think if we let ourselves, our identity can get tied up too much in um, you know, what it is we're doing and not the kind of core values and relationships that we have with people. And so that decision to stop paddling and, um, you know, move on with my career and with my family, um, was, and I think a very, you know, it was a humbling and significant event. Um, I had, uh, you know, moved out to California to live at the Olympic Training Center and, um, you know, kind of fully commit myself to sport and, um, you know, put put aside some of my industrial design career. And getting into it and realizing kind of what it took to be all in to really commit to sport uh, really kind of was a you know, a chance to see that this was not something that I was, you know, fulfilled by anymore. I mean, you have to enjoy the process of, you know, what it is that you're doing that you can't hang everything up on, you know, an end result, whether that's, you know, a, you know, a medal or, you know, like what your international ranking is that you have to, you know, like the, what you're doing every day, on the journey to that process is what's most important. And when I got to a point where, you know, the process was no longer fun for me, it was a moment to hang up the paddle. And so, you know, there was a long journey back from California back to Georgia. Uh, so it was a three day car ride. Uh, it was in a, um, a little black, uh, pickup truck where the air conditioning had just broke. So I was driving through Texas in the summer with no air conditioning and, Ooh. uh, <laughs> And having to figure out what was next uh, for, you know, the path forward. And that was, uh, you know, definitely a significant time in my life because, um, you know, so many people knew me as that kayak guy because, one, they had to figure out what what on earth a kayak was. And then, two, um, you know, like, okay, we're, we're, you know, we're all in on this, you know, kayak journey. And then to change gears was, uh, you know uh, – there's a lot of, you know, you've got current, you've got a lot of current built up and going one direction and you now have to change the direction of that current going a different way. Mm -hmm. So, it's, uh, you know, definitely, uh, um, you know, I guess a key emotional time in my life for, you know, I guess, you know, a significant change in direction. Well, you had a lot of courage to make that change and that, that the visual I get is the, is the actual whitewater paddler who's now got to switch that direction. Um, and, and have the courage to change, which is something that you did and have done successfully now in your, you know, industrial design career, starting your own business, uh, hiring employees, working with other people, having to be uh, a leader uh, of a large group of people now in a commercial enterprise. So as you think about uh, that experience in your company, can you think of a humbling experience that you've had in the workplace? Um. Yeah, I mean the I think probably, you know, another I think kind of reinvention moment was, you know, around 2010-2011. Um so by this point I'd been getting the company up and running and off the ground and um so I had uh you know 
uh, earlier had been a part of Home Depot's uh, internal innovation group. And then with the 2008 downturn, had the opportunity to, you know, I guess really test my mettle and start up a business. And, um, you know, initially it was, you know, basically just a, uh, you know, at, at its core, just a freelancing business where, um, you know, was pulling in what clients that I could. And it was based off of, you know, my own talents and abilities as an industrial designer. And um, so that business model really wasn't working because um, I was both working in the business and on the business and it was, you know, heavily reliant on my own talents and, you know, those that I could attract to the company as independent contractors. And uh, around about 2010 and, you know, of course, at the same time I was working on uh, doing my MBA at night classes and was heading towards graduation. um, And the had a had a moment where you know there was an opportunity to shut down the business there wasn't enough revenues coming in and um you know go back to some kind of corporate role with the you know the new degree that I just had and there was a lesson learned from kayaking that really applied to that moment when was, you know, trying to decide whether or not to kind of throw in the towel and, uh, you know, or to keep going. And it was reminded of, you know, what it was that, uh, I guess set me apart as an athlete was just that, you know, you know, I guess ability to just keep going and stick with it, I think makes a huge difference. And I think for, you know, even if you look back to Greg Barton, the, uh, you know, the two-time gold medalist from the Olympics that, uh, um, you know, what often set him apart was simply that he just kind of kept after it and many of his peers hung up the paddle along the way. And so it was, you know, that, moment where this isn't working, I have to make a change and fundamentally change the business model. So went from renting office space to, uh, committing to a virtual model and then also, uh, rebranding. So the early name of the company had my name on it. And it was, you know, a little bit more about who I was as an individual and a freelancer and, you know, really, you know, rebranded as trig, uh, because it was making it not about, me, the founder, but more about the team and the culture and, you know, who we are as a team of individuals. And so, um, you know, with that rebrand and, um, kind of a jolt and, uh, a couple of new clients coming in the door that, you know, made a big difference, uh, was able to hire the first employee and set up a successful model for growth where it wasn't about my own skill sets, but about putting the skill sets of other people before my own and, you know, be more, about enabling the best efforts of other people and breaking down the barriers that get in the way of them doing their best work that, um, you know, we really hit upon something that has been our own, I guess, growth engine. Yeah. It sounds like there were a lot of, uh, lessons learned there from being such a elite athlete and, and probably having a, a bit of ego that went along with that and realizing that was about you and things that you could control to realizing that um, the business is really not about you and it's about other people in the team. And that was a really important transition um, for you to make. As you think back uh, in the business, not just sort of the survival financially, but what was a really tough decision that you had to make in the workplace? Um, you know, I mean, I think it, it 
the it, staffing is just always a just a tricky issue, both um, on both sides of it. I mean, um, we agonize, particularly in you know our smaller stages, um, over each hire because you know with the commitment to hiring somebody. And I think for me professionally, it's you know, like my job is to make it so that that individual has enough work coming in so that they have a, you know, stable prospects. I mean, stability is an illusion. And so we agonize over each, you know, new hire that we bring on board because we want to make sure that the demand is there not only for our current staff, but also for this new individual coming on board. So that's, you know, always something that we agonize over. And then, um, you know, of course, if things aren't working out, then that's, you know, kind of equally, um, you know, equally painful from either a performance standpoint or a values match standpoint. Um, uh, and so, you know, those you know, kind of come to mind as kind of the, you know, the hardest decisions because it's around the, you know, the people that you work for and making sure that, you know, we're creating an atmosphere within the company that is, you know, enjoyable and a lot of fun and upbeat and, um, you know, making sure that we're also putting forward, you know, the best performance we possibly can for our clients and, you know, staying inspired and moving along those ways. And so, you know, when you've got the right people who have the right values and have the right skill set, then that's works great. And it's such a privilege to be able to, you know, work with those people and, um, you know, can also see when you know, people don't line up necessarily, it can become incredibly demotivating, not just for that individual, but for, I think, everybody in the team and, you know, figuring out that right balance, um, you know, is, I think, the, you know, one of the most perpetually challenging and, you know, I think, uh, you know, it just, you know, uh, has pushed me to grow in my own abilities as a, a leader and a manager. Yeah, that's right. I think it, it in answering that question, virtually everybody talks about that the hardest decisions that they have to make relate to people. They don't relate mm-hmm. to strategy or financials. It's just always around people, getting the right people in the right spot at the right time and weeding the garden, so to speak. So um, it sounds like you've really become committed to that. Uh, so with all these lessons that you've learned along the way, Ty, what would you consider now to be the most important quality of a leader? Yeah, you know, this is something that I don't say I started out being very good at, but as you know, as time has gone on, I've come to value this more and more, and also uh, tried to figure out how to teach it. But it comes down to empathy, uh, the ability to, I think, empathize with um, you know our clients in their situations and deliver solutions for them, the ability to empathize with our team members and make sure that, you know, we're setting up a, you know, work-life balance that um, meets them where they are and, you know, pursue this dream of, you know, uh, setting up a, you know, dream job for individuals that, you know, sets up a real commitment culture where, you know, by attracting these, you know, the best and brightest that we can, that, you know, we create a place where, you know, they, you know, would want to stay for their career so long as it's rewarding. But that sense of empathy is, you know, particularly from coming from a competitive athlete standpoint where so much of the culture as a competitive athlete is not about you as an empath, it's not about 
empathy, but it's about, you know, being very inward focused and, you know, about getting the resources and attention that you need to deliver your best performance that stands in direct contrast to empathy. And so that's something that, um, you know, is incredibly valuable. And, you know, I'd say I'm on a journey in learning how to be more empathetic and, um, and then even for my own kids, you know, how to teach empathy so that, uh, you know, they, they go through life with that skill set. I think that's so great and so important. And like you said, so, uh, different than what, what it takes in terms of the skills to, uh, be an industrial designer and, and all the things related to the product that ultimately what you find to be most important is just empathy around people. And that's, that's really something. Uh, so if someone was, uh, like my 11 year old, um, is thinking about, uh, you know, a few years down the road, starting out in his career, uh, wants to go down a similar path to tie, wants to be like you, what kind of advice would you offer him? So there's, you know, you get all kinds of opportunities along your, along the way, right? So the, uh, types of educational opportunities you have exposure to, um, or the first, you know, couple of job opportunities that you have, uh, one thing that has made a huge difference for me is just this idea that you get out of it, what you put into it, that in many cases, you know, like I was working on, you know, I guess I have an obsessive quality that I've, you know, in many ways, like the A for a given design project was earned a long time ago, but was continuing to work on a given project because it was pushing my own abilities and my own, you know, performance levels up, you know, up beyond where it had previously been. And so, you know, each of those settings that you move into, whether it's professionally or, you know, from an education context or the relationships that, you know, you, you know, build with other people that, you know, the effort you put into it, um, you know, is in large cases determines, you know, what, what kind of, uh, you know, benefits and results. And so, uh, you know, being, you know, very grateful for every opportunity that you have and, you know, making sure that, you know, you're responding to the opportunities with your own best effort, um, has been something that has, you know, been, you know, a tremendous asset to me throughout my career. Um, the other thing I'd, I'd say too, is that this was a lesson from my father is that, you know, he, had always throughout, you know, what set him apart through his career was that he was always reading the latest trade journals and, uh, leadership books that, um, you know, that he could get exposed to. And that oftentimes set him apart. And I've tried to emulate that by being as much of a sponge as I possibly can. And, you know, in many ways, this is how I got exposed to the small giants community was, you know, seeking answers to, you know, questions that I had and shortcomings that I had as a leader and trying to surround myself with, uh, you know, similar community of, you know, people who have like-minded values and we're on a journey to, I guess, fully realize that and develop ourselves as leaders. That's great. You know, we've, uh, had so many things that you've talked about today that are lessons for each of us. And if I can kind of recap what I heard, I heard about, uh, reinvention, which is something all of us have to go through. I heard about, uh, the idea of just sticking with it and and uh, in those down times, just putting your head down, working hard. Uh, we learned about empathy uh, and being grateful for what you have. 
uh, learning, being a sponge. And ultimately, like you said, you get out of it what you put in and all of that effort. And none of those are groundbreaking concepts. They're they're all just about commitment uh, to the things that are important and doing uh, something with a, a set of core values that uh, allow you to be open to learning from other people and uh, being empathetic to make sure that they are getting what they need as much as you're getting what you need out of business and in life. And uh, some really great reinforcing messages there, Ty. Let me, uh, let me finish with just uh, my, my list of quick hits, a little association game where you can just kind of tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Um, name a famous leader you look up to. Uh, so I guess for famous leader would probably be, uh, I guess, Dean Smith, who is the coach of the UNC basketball team. That's right. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, how about a great book that influenced your leadership style? Uh, that'd be Good to Great by Jim Collins. And uh, so I bought that book as a book on CD for the road trip uh, back from the Olympic Training Center. And it was such a muse for me to, you know, be taking those principles, the concept, whole concept of a level five leader just um, solidified so much of, you know, what I had been seeing and observing and those people that I admired. And, um, uh, you know, was something that really, you know, formed a model that I you know, aspire towards. Yeah, I, I love that book. I'm a huge fan of Jim Collins and I can just mm-hmm. picture you in the Texas heat with the window down, <laughs> uh, you know, listening to, listening to that book. Uh, how about your all time favorite movie? Uh, it'd be Lord of the Rings. Ah, okay. I think so, that's the first time we've had that yeah. one. Yeah. All right. So now you're stranded on an Island. You get to take one thing with you. What would it be? Uh, I'll have two answers for that one. Um, so my survivalist Boy Scout training would be a pocket knife. You can um, make sure your lower Maslow's hierarchy of needs are met if you've got a pocket knife. Um, but assuming that I guess you've got maybe I don't know a luxury island or something like that, then in which case I'd bring a you know a Kindle loaded with books. Ah, all right. Uh, you could have if you only had one though. Which one would it be? Uh, I'd have to go with a pocket knife. I mean, yeah, survive. That's right. You, know, you that's... gotta, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta survive first. Books, books won't help you if you're uh, starving. <laughs> the Boy Scout lesson. All right. Uh, so we've talked about a lot of things, and people probably didn't know you were uh, trained for the Olympics. But what's something else about you that people might not know? Uh, this contradicts it, but um, I'm actually not very good at watching sports. Um, make the joke that um, I'm very bad at vicarious sports. So uh, for whatever reason, just like uh, sitting down to watch professional sports has just been something that I, I have about a five-minute attention span, and then I'm off doing something else. And so uh, anyway, it's been something that uh, uh, I've struggled with, and I guess I've just fully accepted about myself that uh, um, I'll, I'll find something else to do rather than, you know, I guess sit down and watch sports. Well, I love that you're such a curious soul and uh, and um, a lifelong learner as well. And, and Ty, I want to thank you very much for being on the podcast. I know everybody will be very inspired by your story. Well, well, thank you, Paul. I'm inspired by your example and also the uh, the other. Uh, I've you know been listening to this podcast avidly and you know uh, trying to uh, I guess learn from uh, those that are in this community. And uh, anyway, it's been a real honor, privilege to get to be a part of this. Oh, thank you very much. We actually have a listener. All right. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, thank you all for joining me on this episode of the Growing with Purpose podcast. Until next time. Mm-hmm.